Good morning, Compass Church. Nice to see you today. Great to be here with you. Great to be back with you. I was here a year ago at Jeff's uh, invitation, and, and Pastor Jeff is a friend of mine. I'm blessed to call him a friend and a kind of colleague in ministry, and we have gotten together uh, sometimes just to be blessed and encouraged. And I met, I met uh, Jeff a couple years ago at an ice cream shop, and I've since discovered that most of you also met him in an ice cream shop, and so we have that in common here today. And so it's just been a, a very much a blessed relationship, and uh, he was kind to invite me to come back again uh, this year. And you know, it's when you get invited back to something a year later, what do you speak on? And uh, I, I've, I've decided to, to continue my series <laughs> from last year. Because last year I was here, and, and Jeff gives freedom to, you know, generally to speak on whatever God lays on our hearts. And so I spoke last year when I was here on the supremacy of Christ in all things. And uh, just a quick recap, since I'm continuing my series, <laughs> I talked about Colossians 1.18, which gives this long description in Colossians 1 of all of God's purposes in redemption, and you get to verse 18, and there's a purpose statement, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, or some translations, he might have the preeminence. And what I shared with you is, is as we dig into that, we see that God has a reason, a purpose for everything that he, that he does, and that in creation, God was purposing to unveil the glories of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and to unveil qualities that the Father knew he had but had never had the opportunity. There was no context for those to be displayed. So what did God do? He purposed to create a massive universe with one singular planet on which he put image bearers made to worship him. And God purposed that after their sin that he would make the second person of the Trinity, one of them, incarnate him, grant him the name Jesus, and for him to live amongst us as one of us and ultimately to die for us, to die for our sins, to die in our place. And in doing that, for these qualities to be unveiled, mercy, compassion, grace, love, uh, obedience, uh, glory, all of these things that now were unveiled for the praise of the second person of the Trinity in a way that an eternity past never had been known because there was no opportunity for his love to be shown and his kindness, et cetera, et cetera. So that was last, that was last year, and uh, you can probably find that on some archival thing on the website if you, are, if you are interested. But we saw in that that after the resurrection that Jesus was enthroned, he was given the highest place, he was given the highest throne, he was given the highest name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christus Curios, Jesus Christ, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's where this whole thing is glowing, is, is the glory of Christ. Now, again, that was last year. This year, continuing my series, I would like to talk with you about what is it that we actually see. Since God is unveiling the glory of the Son through all of creation and redemption and all of human history... When we see the unveiled glory of Christ, what is it actually that we see? And our text this year is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. 
And uh, if, you, if, if you're able to turn there and follow along as, as we get there, what the Apostle Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 4 is he is drawing upon an Old Testament story, a very familiar Old Testament story regarding Moses. That when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and there God gave him the covenant stipulations for his relationship as Yahweh between he and his people Israel, and he uh, wrote with his finger on those tablets of stone the Ten Commandments, that when Moses came down from that mountain, that there was a glow about him, literally a glow, a reflection of the Shekinah glory of God. It was so brilliant and so intense and so intimidating that the Israelites said, Moses, could you put a, like literally, could you put a cover over that? Could you put a veil over your face? Because we can't take it. We can't take the reflection of the glory of God in the face of Moses. So Paul, now drawing on that story, writes this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In the case of, uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May God bless his word to us today, amen. Now, what Paul is talking about here is, is how we actually see the glory of Jesus, okay? And he begins with the assertion here that unbelievers on their own can't see it. They have a veil, that's the, the Old Testament image. The, the veil that covered the, the, the glory of God in the face of Moses is a veil that the natural person has over their heart that keeps them from seeing the glory of Jesus, Blindfolds, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, verse 4. And this is blindness to a kind of spiritual perceiving in Jesus his true identity and his true glory. They, they don't see it. They, they, can't, they don't get it. They don't understand it. This is the explanation. If you have a family member that you have witnessed to, you've shared Jesus with, you've shared your testimony with, you've invited them to you know, church, you've, you've, you've talked with them about the difference that Christ has made in your life, and as much as you talk with them about it, they just keep looking at you with this blank look. And they don't understand why you're excited about this, and to them this seems like, you know, it's just sort of religious silliness. You ever wonder, why can't they get it? You know, like, why don't you understand? This is so fantastic. Paul's explaining why. There is a veil. There's a veil over their hearts. They can't see in Jesus what you, as a Christian, now can see. This is blindness, and of course we see this blindness all around us in society, uh, you know, the, the name of Jesus. Here we just got done singing, you know, your name, your name is victory, you know. We, we love the name of Jesus, we delight in the name of Jesus, we praise the name of Jesus, but you say the name of Jesus outside of uh, the walls of the church, and generally speaking, the name of Jesus is not, you know, this is not a name of power. In fact, it's a... It's a name that is often used as profanity, if you can imagine that. 
the high and holy name of Jesus in our society is actually a profanity. It's a mockery. People that trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are often viewed as, as small-minded and unintellectual. And this passage is explaining why. The natural man, on his own, doesn't get it, can't see it. Because to see his glory, something beyond us has to take the blindness away. And that's what the text says. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So class, tell me, when did God say, let there be light? In creation, right? Genesis 1. Let there be light, and there was light. And what Paul says is the same God who said in creation, let there be light, for the unbeliever to see the glory of Jesus has to speak into their hearts essentially the same words. Let there be light. And that blindness, because of the veil, is taken away. And now, all of a sudden, they are able to see what has always been true, but they were blind to it. Like, like a, a, a blind man who, you know, if all of a sudden he could see, he could say, when did the sun start shining? You would say the sun has always been shining. You just couldn't see it. And the glory of Christ, he has always been the glorious second person of the Trinity. He always will be the most glorious being in all of the universe. But when an unbeliever who maybe profaned the name of Jesus, mocked the name of Jesus, suddenly now the light goes on and they can see, might say, when did Jesus become this? He has always been this. But you were blind to it. But now you can see. With me? Okay, with me? Now, let's dig a little deeper. What is it actually that we see? When God turns the lights on and I come to ascertain who Jesus is, what is it that I actually see? And this is now back to the text. Look at verse 4. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, both of these verses are using the imagery of light, okay, light. By God's grace, we are enabled, when God turns the lights on, we are enabled to see in Jesus, to perceive in Jesus something that is not found in any other religious figure, in any other politician, any other famous person in history, any other philosopher, any other sort of hero in the human story, we perceive in Jesus, the text says, the full glory of God in his face. Now, seeing Jesus' face, this is metaphorical language because none of us have seen the face of Jesus. Now, I could ask, anybody here see the face of Jesus? And I know the answer to that is no, but there's no doubt some teenager that desperately wants to raise their hand. So I'm not even going to ask the question uh, because he is, he is using a metaphorical language. We, we perceive in Jesus the glory of God. We perceive in Jesus his face, 
Now, the reason he says face is that when, when we see somebody's face, their face represents who they are, right? So when we take pictures, your Christmas picture in front of the barn, which is kind of the common Christmas photo these days, uh, or whatever it is that you do for your Christmas photo, you're not sending pictures out of your, of your elbows and your toes. It is always the face. Because when you see the face, you, can, you identify who the person is. Like, oh, look, there's, uh, you know, there's Peter and, and, and Susan and Lucy. Some of you might be with me on that. Uh, we understand who they are because we see, their, we see their face. And in salvation, and what God is doing, if you're a Christian here today, this is explaining how you became a Christian. In salvation, God enables us to see in the historical Jesus of Nazareth that he was not just another man who did extraordinary things. Rather, he gives us a kind of spiritual facial software recognition where all of a sudden, we identify in him that he is actually God, that he is actually the Savior, that he is actually the Messiah, that he is more than a prophet, he is more than a cult hero, he is more than a carpenter. He is the embodiment of God and the Savior of the world. And the heart, now with the light turned on, recognizes by the grace of God who he is. Here's John writing the same thing, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did the Apostle Paul say that he saw? He saw a man, he saw a body, but he says what we actually saw was the glory of God, his glory. So glory is what we spiritually perceive that makes Jesus unique in all of history. But pressing further, what is it that we actually see within that glory? What is it that, that draws us to him? And this is what I'm talking to you about today. It is the beauty of Christ. There is an aspect of Jesus that draws our hearts to him in such a way that we not only trust in him for our salvation, but our hearts are drawn to him in order to love him and to obey him and to delight in him and to worship him with our life. This is the Christian life. And it is his beauty that draws us to him. We want to love him. We want to follow him. We have all these affections and desires that rise in us that we never had before. I mean, here you are at church, for goodness sakes. The old you probably would be shocked that you were even here on a beautiful summer Sunday morning. Here you are at church. What's gotten into you? Christ has gotten into you. And his beauty has drawn your life to him. And it's a wonderful thing. Now, so the beauty of Christ. What is the beauty of Christ? We say, Jesus, you're so beautiful. What do we mean by that? And what, one thing that's obvious here is that it's not the way that we normally think about it. Because in our culture, when you think about beauty, we automatically think about physical beauty. 
the beauty of appearance. And with Jesus, that's not the case, at least the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Isaiah tells us that there was nothing about his physical appearance that drew us to him. If, if, if the Jesus of the Bible came walking in here right now, came down the aisle, nobody would go, hey, look, it's Jesus. Why? Because he looked like everybody else. There was nothing about him that people said, oh, look, it's the Messiah. Because look how amazing he is. And so we need to get out of our minds that Jesus is, uh, you know, the, a Swedish bodybuilder in flowing white gowns that just sort of walks in the room and everyone goes, look, it's the Messiah. No, he was, there was nothing about him physically that made people go, wow. The beauty of Christ was a deeper and much more meaningful beauty. Like what? And in this, I'm just giving you a little sampler platter here today because there is so much that we could say, but to talk about a few of the qualities of Jesus that are beautiful. Jesus is beautiful as the perfect image of God. Here is Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Think of this, friends. The Bible says that we are made in the image of God, and that's a wonderful truth, and You've probably heard messages about the image of God and how this brings dignity to human life and all human life is valuable. It doesn't matter your skin color, your age, your status, in the womb, out of the womb, all of that. Human life is valuable. Why? Because we are made by God and we are made in the image of God. And that's a wonderful, wonderful truth. But there is a huge difference between being made in the image of God and being God. (laughs) We are reflections of what God is like. We are little pictures of what God is like. But Jesus is God, friends. He is God. You, look, you want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. And everything he did and everything that he said was exactly divine. Because he is himself divine. This is the difference between looking at a picture of the Grand Canyon and standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. The picture never does it justice, right? You, you look at the picture, you go, wow, that's a big hole. You stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you're like, that's a big hole. <laughs> it's a massive, massive hole. And you, no matter how godly you are today, you are merely a reflection, a picture, a little picture as an image bearer of what God is like. But we look into the life of Jesus, we look into the ministry of Jesus, and we see deity, actual divine God in the flesh. Breathtakingly beautiful. Secondly, he is beautiful as the beauty which all other beauties reflect. And I have to say, this is my favorite point in the whole message. What a wonderful truth this is. Because I look around here, I I know a guy here in the front row, and if I really met everybody and we did, you know, bingo, uh, name bingo, we'd probably figure out somebody that we know. I don't know anybody else here hardly, okay? But I don't have to know you to know you love beautiful things. We all do. And we got our different things that we're kind of into, right? We've got some of you are into music, and some of you are into food, and and some of you are into travel, and some of you are into landscaping, and some of you are into interior decorating, and some of you are, you know, members of the Art Institute, and you, you know, love uh, art and those kinds of, whatever it is, everybody here loves, loves beauty, Beautiful things. And like 
The Mona Lisa is a tribute to the incredible soul of da Vinci. And like uh, the Messiah is a tribute to the, the depth of the soul of Handel, the Bible says that all of creation, the entire universe from the galaxies to the atoms, all of it is one massive self-portrait of what God is like. And we look into this created world, and everywhere we look, there is astonishing symmetry and astonishing beauty. And it doesn't matter if you're an engineer loving math, or a poet loving language, or a musician loving whatever it is you're playing. All of it, everywhere we go, it is majestically, effulgently, wonderfully beautiful. And to think, as the Bible says, all of this is a physical, tangible expression of what God is like. And that he is the beauty behind all of the beauty. Here's Romans 1 verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we look into the world and we see God's physical creation portraying what he is like. And all of it so wondrously and gloriously Beautiful. The whole earth, the Bible says, Isaiah 6, the whole earth is full of his glory. Romans 11, for from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory. Colossians 1.18, last year's message. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. And what we find then in the Bible is that while everything is a reflection of what God is like, it is specifically portraying what Jesus is like. The second person of the Trinity is the focus of creation and redemption. And God grants to us these senses, taste, touch, sight, feel, hearing, that perfectly correlate to the sensory world around us, little receptors that are taking into our heart and soul all of these beautiful things. Why? Because God wants us to know what he is like. What do we think as we experience beautiful things? Fantastic. Awesome. You maybe came back from a family vacation already this summer. It was awesome. What was great about it? Oh, it's so many. The sunsets and the lake and the, the, the food and the barbecue and the la, 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 whatever it is. All these things. And they make us want more, right? You want more sunsets and you want more barbecue and you want more German chocolate cake, and you want more sweet family times. You want more of these things. They draw, beauty draws our hearts towards more of it. To betray my own personal preferences, I want more chocolate and coffee. I want more Florida spring breaks and coffee. I want, I want more, I want more Pebble Beach golf and coffee. I want more strawberry pie and coffee. I want more of it. Beauty always is never satisfied. It it always wants more. But in terms of scale, to realize that 
the, 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 Grand, the Teton Mountains and Andromeda Galaxy and whatever it is that is to you the big thing in your life, the Bible says that all of these are little bitty, little, little reflections of the real beauty. That Christ in his glory and his beauty is so much greater than even the thing that we are tempted to worship itself. That Christ is greater than all of it. Let me illustrate this way. It's, it's like the difference, let's just say for a second, that, that you'd never seen the sun. All that you had ever seen is the moon. If all there was was the moon, we would think the moon is pretty awesome. Right? It's bright. It's light. It's spherically, perfectly round. It helps me to see at nighttime. If all you knew was the moon, we all would be like, the moon is awesome. Until we see the sun. Once you see this, like if, if you, all you saw was the moon and all of a sudden you saw the sun, it'd be like, oh, oh, the sun. Why? Because the sun is like so much brighter than the moon. The sun is so much bigger than the moon. The sun actually, I feel warmth from the sun. Like the moon is awesome, but it's nothing compared to the sun. In fact, if I really understand things, I would realize that I can enjoy the moon because it's reflecting the sun, which actually gets to the point that I'm trying to make here today with you, that to realize that all of these things that we enjoy in this world, they are moonlight. Sex is moonlight. Daughter's uh, wedding is moonlight. German chocolate cake, moonlight. Pebble Beach golf, moonlight. Lake Michigan, Moonlight, the beach, moonlight, all of it is moonlight. Christ is the sun, which all of these things reflect. And therefore, we can enjoy them but worship Christ through them. Christ is more beautiful than the things that our world worships themselves. He is the beauty behind all of the beauty Third, he is beautiful as the full expression of divine love. And this may sound confusing, but again, if we want to know what God is like, we just look to the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, and we realize the depth of the character and the beauty of the triune God. And what do we see in Jesus? Again, just a partial list. We see compassion for the brokenness and the pain of the human experience. Over and over again, we see Jesus doing the culturally unacceptable thing. Hey, look, it's a Samaritan woman. I'm going to go talk to her. Hey, look, it's, uh, it's a leper. Nobody touches. He touches the leper. He, the, the widow who's uh, grieving her, the death of her son, what does he do? He's filled with compassion for her. He goes, he raises him from the dead. I say in my church, Jesus ruined every funeral he ever went to because he always raised people from the dead. We see the prostitute who repents and Jesus forgives her sins. The blind man cries out to him on the road, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus filled with compassion for her, or for him. 5,000 people hungry, he meets their needs. Peter betrays him, he restores him. You know, just think of the people. These are the famous people in the story. The lame man at the pool, the blind man along the road, and even Lazarus the dead man. 
Every single time, Jesus showing compassion. And we look in those stories and we hope that maybe if Jesus was compassionate for the, for the blind man, maybe he's going to be compassionate for me. If Jesus is compassionate for the grieving widow, maybe Jesus will be compassionate for me. And that is exactly the point. That's why we have the Gospels. This is what God is like. And Jesus perfectly reflects the infinitely beautiful, glorious character of the divine. Mercy for the humble of heart. I'll just read this. Jesus said it. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Maybe you came here today, and you're the bruised reed. You're the smoldering wick. Your life is hanging on by a thread. Does Jesus care about me? He's the one that said that. Total self-giving sacrifice to redeem sinners. And here we get really at the heart of it. Because the mission that Jesus came into this world for was to save sinners. He came to save us. And the strangest place for divine beauty to be on display was the cross. Because the cross, even thousands of years later, the cross stands out as a terrible terrible way to die. It was a form of torture. I mean, if, if, if somebody from 2,000 years ago could come walking into this room and see you have crosses lit up like this, they would be astounded. Why do you have those highlighted in your worship space? It's terrible. We don't even want to think about it. And yet it was on the cross, this terrible, gruesome, bloody, sweaty spot of death. It was on that cross that the ultimate display of real beauty, which is divine love, that Jesus put it on display in obedience to the Father and with a heart truly for us as sinners, Jesus died bearing our guilt, bearing the punishment that our own sins deserve, Jesus died in our place and conquered sin and death and Satan and gained a victory through his resurrection, ushering in the opportunity of new life in Jesus and a new kingdom. And he is the king of the new kingdom. He's the hero of the story. His name is Jesus. All bow to him. So what is the beauty of Christ? It is this. You take everything that you see in Jesus that is admirable and glorious and wonderful and you put those all together like a bouquet of flowers and you stand back, what you see is his beauty. Any one of them, individually, wonderful, but it is the collection of all of them together in one singular person that causes Jesus to stand out in all of history, the most wonderful life, the most wonderful person that has ever lived. It is Christ, and he is beautiful. Now, I was getting ready to preach here at Compass. If I can say it, I was actually in the shower. And I got thinking about, strangely, Walter Payton. I grew up watching Walter Payton. My dad loved Walter Payton. I'd watch him with my dad and to this day, Walter Payton revered because he was this, you know, uh, this strange mixture of seemingly opposite qualities. He was incredibly strong and powerful, and yet he was incredibly fast and agile. He, he kind of had, and, and as strong as he was when he ran, he looked like he was a dancer. 
You know, he just sort of pranced and danced down the field. And it's a strange mixture of qualities that you had in Walter Payton. In fact, what was his nickname? Do you remember? Okay, now you're with me, all right? Sweetness. The world looked at those qualities together, and they named him Sweetness. What do we have with Jesus? We have the mixture of seemingly opposite qualities. He is the most powerful being in the world, and yet he is gentle. He is the most glorious being in the world, and yet he has a heart and compassion for the sinner. He is the most holy person that has ever lived, yet he dies for sinners. He is all of these qualities all together in one person. He is beautiful, and I I wonder this morning if you see the beauty of Christ. Has the veil been taken away from your heart? Do you understand that with Jesus, we're not talking about your favorite politician. We're not talking about your favorite author. We're not talking about your intellectual person that you like. We are talking about the person who made the claim to be the Son of God and then was resurrected from the dead. We're talking about the towering figure in all of human history, the most wonderful life that has ever been lived is the life of Jesus Christ. In the words of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. What do I see? I see his glory, and I am drawn to his beauty. Glorious, beautiful him. And finally, he is beautiful as the satisfaction of all of our longings. And this is the power of the beauty of Christ Because there are compelling arguments that could be made. You probably had messages from this stage. Compelling arguments to be made for the resurrection of Jesus or the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and all these different things. But I'm going to guess today you didn't come to church because you wanted to hear an argument. I'm going to guess we have a lot of people right here today who walked into this room and you, like everybody else in this world, are struggling with unfulfilled longings in your life. You have a career that you thought would satisfy you and it doesn't. You are dissatisfied with the state of your marriage. You are frustrated with uh, family relationships. There's things in your life that you have longings that you want to be this, and actually life is that. And so you came to church today hoping that maybe somebody would say something that might speak to that sense of loss in your life. My life isn't what I thought it would be. And in the midst of all of human history towers Jesus, the most compelling and beautiful life that has ever been lived And all of the galaxies and all of the atoms of this world and all of the sunsets and all of the oceans and all of the ice cream is whispering and shouting that Christ is gloriously, wonderfully beautiful. And if the veil is taken away from your heart, you will discover that he is also the redeemer and savior of all who put their personal trust in him. This is Christ. This is Jesus. And I wonder if the veil has been taken away. Now, I have a a three-year-old daughter, and I have a five-year-old daughter. And my family was going to actually join me uh, to be here, but uh, my my three-year-old came home from BBS this week and got all of us sick. So they're not here. 
But I have a three-year-old and five-year-old daughter that are just uh, cute, cute as can be. And I, I got married a little later in life, so I'm a little late to the parenting party. Uh, but I'm here to tell you right now, perhaps my favorite part of any given day is when I come home from the office. And I walk in the door, and I open the door, and I hear these sort of squealing girls' uh, voices, Daddy's home! And here they come running to me, and I'm like, oh, oh, it's so good to see you. And the hugs and the kisses, and oftentimes, you know, they will very quickly say, let's play. And of course, I say, no, your pastor's kids, we're going to memorize verses. No, what do I say? I say, of course, let's play. Come on, let's play. And so they, you know, they, uh, what do you want to play? Let's play hide and seek. I say, okay, let's play hide and seek. You girls go hide, and I'll stay here by the garage door, and I'm going to count to ten. And so they pitter-patter off, and I'm like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ready or not, here I come. And you know, I come stomping out of the mudroom. Where are these girls? I'm going to get them, you know. And Within about half a second of coming into the family room, what do I hear? We're over here! You try to explain it to them. No, the point is that you hide. Doesn't matter. We're over here! I'll come act like I didn't hear that. You know, where, where? I don't, I don't, like, we're over here. Why do, do my three-year-old and five-year-old say, we're over here? Because they want to be found. They want to be found. Why did God make the universe the way that he made it? Why did he design this world to so reflect his character? Why did he incarnate Jesus and send him into this world and have him die on the cross? Why? Because he wants to be found. He has not made this a secret. Every day it shouts out from the skies who God is and what he is like. And all of the music and all of the galaxies and the color spectrum and the food and the, the, the sexual intimacy and all of these things, it is because God wants to be found and all of it is whispering to us every day with power and clarity that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried, on the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is the beauty of Christ. And my dear friend, can you see it? Can you see it? I'm going to pray right now that you would and if you would join with me. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for how it explains all reality. And we thank you for how it explains salvation. And we thank you that you're the God that takes the veil away. That you're the God that speaks into the heart of the sinner. Let there be light. Father, I pray that right now the veil would be taken away. I pray that right now hundreds of people here would 
see in a new and a fresh way the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And Jesus, may you be once again lifted high and displayed and your glory and beauty admired and praised and worshipped. To you indeed be all the glory. Amen.